I pray that as we open your word, you give us insight. I pray, Father, that as we learn more from Hezekiah, and I pray as we learn more about your character, that you transform us. I pray that it would make a radical difference in our day-to-day life and the way we deal with circumstances and situations and people, even as we think about the future. I pray that this text would build our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. This morning I've entitled the message, The God Who Can Be Trusted. The God Who Can Be Trusted. When we looked at Hezekiah's life last time, we saw several different realities. We saw that Hezekiah truly was a light in the midst of the darkness. We read about his life, and there's an honest account. We are not only exposed to his godliness, we're exposed to some of his failures. But what we do see is the text gives an account of his life in a, in a very commendable way. We see how God's grace touched his life. And even in the opening verses of 2 Kings 18, uh, look at verse 5 of chapter 18. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. That word trust is is fascinating. It means to be confident, to Trust. It expresses the feeling of safety and security, this lexicon says, that is felt when one can rely on someone or something else. Now think about that. The safety or security that is felt when one can rely on someone or something else. And we learn from the scripture, we learn from our life, more importantly, the scripture. But we learn that only God can hold our trust. He's the only one that can be worthy of never letting us down and making us truly secure. When we look at this word, I was surprised to see the word trust. It's actually only used in the book of 2 Kings during the account of the life of Hezekiah. It's never used anywhere else in 2 Kings other than chapter 18 and 19. And it's used in a way where the enemies of Hezekiah, the Assyrians, are seeking to mock the people of Israel, that they are seeking to trust God. Hezekiah is a man who's trusting God. His enemies are seeking to bring doubt, and they're casting all this ridicule over the fact that the God of Israel is to be trusted, and yet we see that God is to be trusted. And what I want to do this morning, I want to break this down just to try to give us some handles. Chapter 19 into two different scenes. We've done this before, and we, we could come up with 10 different scenes this morning really quickly and easily. I want to just do two. Two scenes. The first scene is going to describe, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. 
It's going to describe how low Hezekiah is at the report of the Assyrians and what they are seeking to do, not only to Israel or to Jerusalem, but to the people and their confidence in God. We're going to see how he is humbled before God. We're going to see how he sends messengers to Isaiah, the prophet, and we're going to see God speak through Isaiah, the prophet. And then when we get into scene number two, in verse 8, down to the end of the chapter, we're going to see how Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, threatens. We're going to see Hezekiah yet again call out to God. We're going to see God reveal yet again through Isaiah a word not only to Sennacherib, but to Hezekiah. And then we're going to see the death of Hezekiah. But to get us familiar with this first scene, let's read chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. It says in verse 1, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace, children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land." In each of these scenes that we're going to examine, scene one, verses one through seven, scene two, verses eight through 37, we're going to look at a pattern. We're going to look at a pattern, and each scene will reveal two identical points. The first one, Hezekiah's reliance on God. The second point, God's worthiness to be relied on. Hezekiah's reliance or trust in God, and then God's worthiness to be trusted. God's worthiness to be relied on. So the first scene, let's see this pattern develop. How do we see Hezekiah's reliance on God? Before we jump in there, let me review just quickly. We saw last week several different characteristics about this light in the darkness, King Hezekiah. We saw his faithfulness. We just read about it in chapter 18, verse 5 and 6. We saw his prospering. It was really a, a fulfillment of the blessings and the cursings of the law of Deuteronomy. If you obey me, you'll walk in blessing. It was the blessings of the king that against a physical enemy that Israel would have, the kings would walk successfully before the Lord, their God, as they walked obediently, as they followed the ways of the word of God. And we looked at how that relates to understanding, how that relates to soul prosperity in our lives. Not a promise for wealth and not a promise for health, 
but the assurance of deep satisfaction in Christ and true blessing as we follow after Jesus. But we saw Hezekiah's persecution, and that's really going to be the focal point here because we're going to see how Assyria is a constant headache in his life. How these representatives, these commanders, these diplomats that are speaking on behalf of Sennacherib, they are causing a major headache for Hezekiah. And just as he faced persecution, we can relate to that in our own lives as Christians. But we saw Hezekiah's stumble. We saw how briefly in chapter 18, he turned his trust to Assyria. And rather than trust God, he makes a major misstep. But then we see Hezekiah's repentance. And last week, we started into chapter 19. And we saw, how do you respond when you fail? How do you respond when you completely blow it and you sin against God? We see Hezekiah demonstrate repentance. And we see Hezekiah demonstrate confession before the Lord. So here we are, as we jump in, we see this this ongoing threat that Sennacherib Sennacherib is bringing. And now he is overwhelmed. Why is he overwhelmed? You see in verse 1, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. What is the context? As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, what did he hear? What did he hear? Well, to understand what he heard, we have to go back. We have to go back. He heard the report. You see, verse 37 of chapter 18, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And what? who is the Rabshakeh? That's a strange name. It's not a proper name. It's speaking of a commander. He's a, he's a chief in, in the palace. So it's speaking of a general office. But this guy was clearly a diplomat. He was skilled not only in the language of foreign peoples, he knew how to speak the language of the Hebrews. But not only that, he was up to speed, at least in a great degree, of how they thought and how they looked at the God that they served. So all this is going on, and what the Rabshakeh has done is he starts casting doubt. And so now what he's doing in the language of Judah in verse 28 of chapter 18, he's calling out, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So this is chapter 18, verse 28. This is going to set the stage and the context as to why Hezekiah is so low, as to why he tore his clothes, as to why he covered himself with sackcloth as to why he went into the house of the Lord. What was going on? Well, what's going on is that the messenger, the commander, is calling out in front of the people, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. And he's saying to the people in verse 29, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Hezekiah loves the Lord and he wants to lead his people. And now he hears the report that there's a man who's seeking not only to publicly come against Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he's seeking to publicly undermine the king of Judah. So we've got this this thing happening here. And what is Hezekiah so overwhelmed with? Well, we look at verse 31. Look what the Rabshakeh was doing. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Now notice, the king of Assyria is saying, look, 
Make your peace with me and come out to me. So the scene seems to be like this, that he's outside of the city and basically is like, I'm here and I'm ready to accept your, you're basically like that you've given up, that we surrender. Come to me. And here's what he's promising. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. I tell you, when we believe false ideas, we can believe all the false ideas we want, but false ideas have consequences. And thankfully, the people didn't believe the, the king of Assyria. I want you to think about that. How many different messages are going out in the world right now? All these messages have to be measured against the standard of God's truth. If they're not messages that represent the standard of truth, what happens? They're false messages. They're false messages that people can believe. And, and as people will say, we're free to believe whatever we want. Yeah, but you're not free to take on the consequences. You can't determine the consequences of the belief systems you buy into. And he's telling the people, look, come to me. I'll take care of you. You don't need to trust God. You don't need to trust his man, Hezekiah. You need to trust me. And look, what does he say? I'll take you away to a land. And he's basically saying, I'm going to take you to a land just like a land that you have, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. The world will promise a way of life, but it will never deliver. The world will offer you everything. The cultural way of the world is, is a promise of happiness, a promise of success, a promise of all of these realities, but it can't deliver. It's putting our hopes in the world versus putting our hopes in God. And when we put our hopes in the world, the world never delivers and the world always disappoints. So what we see here in verse 33, he says, Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of king of Assyria? And now he starts naming all the places that have been conquered at the hand of Assyria in verse 34, verse 35. And now the report comes to Hezekiah. And notice, number one here, what was Hezekiah's response? How does he rely upon God immediately? What does he do? We have looked at a journey of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we're all the way to chapter 19 and 2 Kings, and what has been the pattern of the ungodly kings? When they're faced against a crisis, where do they run? They don't run to God. They run to man. They run to man's wisdom. They run to foreign enemies. They run all different places. They seek earthly saviors. They seek any type of way of getting relief outside of God. But what we see here is Hezekiah's actions point to the reality that he turned to God. He turned to God. And we see it in several different ways. It says he tore his clothes we see this in the Old Testament. It's a sign of mourning. He ripped apart his clothes, and what it's coupled with here gives us a better understanding. He covered himself with sackcloth. I was reading in, in one study Bible, and I thought this is really simple and sweet, but, but profound, a reaction that symbolized Hezekiah's grief, repentance, and contrition. What had Hezekiah done that was so problematic in chapter 18. 
Well, we go back to chapter 18, and what do we read in verse 13 and 14? If you can understand this, you'll understand better his repentant response now. Because in chapter 18, verse 13 and 14, it says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now look at verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Do you see the problem here? Hezekiah stumbled. Hezekiah, it appears, was overcome by fear. But, but here is the encouraging reality in the life of Hezekiah. God's grace overcame Hezekiah. And the second time around, now that he's faced with the reality of the Assyrian messenger, the Rebshakeh, calling out to Judah to come and surrender before him, God works within his heart. And rather than run to the foreign enemy, rather than look to Assyria to do what only God could do, he turns away from Assyria and he, by faith he looks towards his God. Again, when you may be here today and you're dealing with private sin in your life, you may be here today and, and, and you've openly sinned, you, you've sinned against somebody, what do you do now when you have faced, you're facing the reality of your own sin and the consequences of your own sin? What you can do by God's grace is learn from Hezekiah in the way that he turns to God after he completely blows it. What do you do? You keep on walking righteously. How do you walk righteously in the midst of unrighteousness? It begins by confession and repentance towards God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think sometimes we tell people over and over the godly way to live, but then they fall and they're thinking, what now? Well, the way you respond is modeled here by Hezekiah the second time around that he had a chance to compromise. He turns by faith into the God of Israel. And what does he do? He tore his clothes. He covered himself with sackcloth. It was a picture of repentance, contrition, grief. And he goes into the house of the Lord. I was reading in a cross-reference in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, it says, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. We get a picture of the house of the Lord in the Old Testament. And we get a picture of, of running to the house of the Lord there's so many things we could explore there about the reality of the new covenant and a better covenant and a better way through Jesus Christ, a better way through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what we see here modeled by Hezekiah is running after God in the midst of trouble. Where do you run when you're up against a crisis? Where do you run? Do you run to financial saviors? Do you run to worldly wisdom? 
uh, it, there's so many practical applications here, but I pray that just as Romans says, these things are written for our instruction, that as we read through this account, we keep our hands open and we say, God, would you reveal my heart? Would you show me what I need to see? And he saw it. It keeps getting better. He, he not only tears his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth. He goes into the house of the Lord, but then he seeks a word from God. And how would that take place underneath an Old Testament situation, Old Testament time frame within this history line of redemption? What would he do to seek a word from God? Well, he would want to hear from God's man, the prophet. The prophet. Who's this prophet? None other than Isaiah. Isaiah. He seeks out a word from God. He doesn't seek a word from the world. You remember Rehoboam modeled the foolishness of seeking ungodly counsel. Now, here's a man, Hezekiah, and Isaiah's reputation of being a pure prophet of God. He knows that if he gets a word from Isaiah, he's hearing directly from God. And that's what he does. He models for us what this looks like. Where do we go Repentance, humility, confession, run to God, not run to man, run to the word, not to others or other words, but seek a word from God in his word. And he goes on here. His primary concern that he shows, his primary concern is the name of God. It's interesting because if, you know, I, I think we could all say that if we were going to try to learn more about prayer, and I don't trust people who say that they've arrived in their prayer life. We all need to grow in prayer, don't we? But I think we would all agree that the Lord's Prayer, as you could call it the disciples' prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And remember what he says. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. You know what the word hallowed means? It's a word we misunderstand often. It means may your name be revered above all. It's interesting because often I know in my own life, when I go to God in an emergency, I'm seeking to get escape from a problem and I'm seeking for an answer the way that I think in my own wisdom, I need that answer. But isn't it interesting the way Jesus teaches us to pray sets everything in its proper framework. It starts out with the acknowledgement that God is in heaven. It then proceeds to say, before I ever get to my own supplication, before I ever get to my own request, I acknowledge the reality that the most important reality is that his name be revered. It's, it's amazing. And, and then it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's fascinating because often by the grace of God, if our hearts come into tune with the heart of prayer that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 6, it changes the very request that we're offering to God. Because we begin to realize, wait a minute, what takes priority over my own request is the glory of God. The glory of God, his purpose, his way, his name, his fame, 
is more important than what I even bring. And Hezekiah seems to be praying the same way without even the luxury of having Matthew chapter 6. Isn't it interesting that God works according to his word and his word doesn't contradict itself? And what we learn in the Old Testament about prayer and what we learn about the character of God in the old, we see revealed in the new. It's not like there's some brand new thing. The brand new thing is the culmination of redemptive history in Jesus Christ. But God does not contradict himself from the old to the new. And so isn't it interesting that Hezekiah understands here that what's most important is not simply the reality that Judah may go into captivity to Assyria. What's more important is the holy name of God that is being ridiculed and mocked and scorned. And that's what he expresses. He's mocking the living God. And there in verse 4, it may be, I really believe this is humble way of saying, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to do what? To mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He, he not only... Uh, he not only tears his clothes, covers himself with sackcloth. He not only runs to the temple, goes into the house of the Lord. He not only seeks a word from the prophet, he seeks the prayers of the prophet. And I think you've probably heard it before. It's easy to say it can become like a cliche, but a lack of prayer in our life reveals a lack of dependence upon God. That's a humbling thing to hear, isn't it? When we are prayerless people, it shows that we are arrogant people. When we're prayerless people, it speaks to the fact that we're depending on our own strength and not God's. Who, what kind of people pray? What kind of people run to God? People who are dependent upon God. People who acknowledge their weakness and acknowledge their insufficiency, who acknowledge their lack of wisdom, their lack of power, their lack of ability. And so what do we see here? When, when, when the response, I find it interesting that it's sad and, and, and it can be understood because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God and the mind of the natural man is at opposition to the mind of God. But so often when Christians are mocked because they're praying, you notice that? Oh, y'all go pray. Well, what they don't understand is that Christians are called to pray because they recognize the God whom they pray to is worthy of their reliance. He's worthy of their trust. He's worthy of our trust. He commands us and calls us to pray, and it's a picture of who he is and our need of him. So he wants Isaiah to pray and what takes place next is we see Isaiah respond. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. I, I love this. You see, not only, so we have scene one. I'm, I'm realizing quickly, we're, we may only make it through scene one this morning. 
we'll just do like, you know, like when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor in a Baptist church and we had dinner on the grounds and preaching just continued in the afternoon. So some of y'all are thinking that's what's going to happen here. We're just going to keep going to scene two. Hezekiah's reliance on God. How is that reliance portrayed? He humbles himself. He humbles himself. What does your disposition say about your heart's response to God? Ever thought about that? People that are strong, people that know it all, people that are proud of their own ingenuity, their own wisdom, their own intellect, it's very, very unlikely you'll never see them do what? Allow their outward reactions display their inner inability. But what takes place? He tears his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth. He's a humbled man. He's a humbled man, and he goes into the house of the Lord. Wait a minute. You're talking about the king. You're talking about King Hezekiah, one that's not been around like David and since David. And what does he do? He goes into the house of God, and he pleads to God. You get this picture. He's praying out to God. He's going to the man of God. He's seeking a word from the Lord. He's seeking a prayer from the man of the word. And he's relying on God, but we see God is worthy to be relied on. Isaiah in verse six gives him a word from God. Look what it says. Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. This is, this is amazing here. We see the power of God. He's telling him here, I will put a spirit in him. He'll hear a rumor. He'll take off to his own land. I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And then verse 8, Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. Look at verse 6 and 7, and let's consider something here. How does the passage we just read display to us the worthiness of our God to be relied on. What do we learn about the character of God in these two verses? Well, one thing we, I think we definitely learn is the power of God. It's one thing for me to try to console you if you're scared out of your mind. Don't be scared. It's another thing for one who controls the outcomes to command you not to be fearful. See the difference? I'll never forget, I was on a plane one time, flying from, I think from Huntsville to Atlanta, and then I went on a plane from Atlanta to Phoenix. And in the middle of the flight, I've, I've flown a pretty good bit, not as much as some of y'all, but I've flown a lot. And in the middle of the flight, uh, it felt like I didn't, it was so strange. It felt like that the, there was a thousand Boy Scouts throwing rocks at the plane. 
it just started getting pelted. It was a hailstorm. And, 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 and all of a sudden, it got, it got really, really crazy. And drinks were flying all over the plane. And I'd never done that. I, I grabbed my seatbelt, and I pulled that thing as tight as it would go. And I mean, we people were panicking. And there was this lady on the plane, stewardess, a flight attendant. She was in the back, and she started screaming. And she says, calm down calm down. And people are yelling, we're going to die. We're going to die. The plane is crashing. That's a little unnerving. And I remember thinking this is, I looked over at the guy next to me and it was crazy. I've never been in turbulence like that. I'm talking the kind where if you didn't have your seatbelt on, your head's on the ceiling. And we were in that for what seemed to be minutes. Maybe it was a minute and a half. I don't know. But I'll tell you something. She tried to calm everybody down. I, I go to the camp and I speak at the camp and I'm on my way back and I go into the Phoenix airport and I get on a flight and I'm walking on the plane and lo and behold, who do I see? I see the flight attendant. Now on that, during that, that hailstorm, it lasted for a brief period of time and all of a sudden we came out of it and it was like over. And everybody's just like, whoa, it's done. We're Okay. So we got to the, we landed in Phoenix and we got off the plane and we're all just sort of sitting there walking around. I'm talking to people like, would that overreact or were you a little bit? Eh? And they were all like, no, nah, man, it, that was rough. Well, well, I get back on the plane a week later. Okay. And the flight attendant and I go, wait a minute. And she looked at me and I looked at her and I said, you were the flight attendant on that flight last week. You know what she did? She's standing there. She looks at me. I'm on like the first row. It was like, it wasn't first class. It was one of those small jets. But I'm right here. And she goes immediately to the cockpit. And I hear her. And she points back at me. And she tells the pilot, he was on the flight. He was on the flight. And I said, come here. And she came over to me. And I said, be honest with me. Were you nervous? I said, did you think we were crashing? And she looked at me and said, absolutely. She says, I thought we were going down. And I said, you did an amazing job. I said, you took control. And what was she telling us? Not to be afraid, yet she was scared out of her mind. There's a difference in telling someone not to be afraid, and there's a difference between that and someone having the power and the means to control outcomes. God is powerful. He's worthy to be relied on. What, what are you fearful of this morning? I've told you my story. God's sanctifying me. I'm in a process. I'm on a journey. I've grown a lot over the years. But one of my biggest sin struggles has been fear. One of my biggest sin struggles has been anxiety. And for years, I just saw it as a natural way of dealing with crazy circumstances, and I didn't relate it to the fact that I wasn't trusting God. I wonder this morning if you're gripped by fear. I love this. Do not be afraid. I was looking up just some cross-references. I want to encourage you here. Why is God worthy to be relied on? Because he's the all-powerful God. In Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? 
Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We could go on and on and on. Believe it or not, there's variations. Some people say there's a do not fear for every day of the year. Their heart beats right because there's actually... I think 330 passages, if you took not fear, afraid, and all of them, and you combined them. But there's 70 direct references about do not fear. Do not fear. And all of that, we see here his power. But keep going here. Do not be afraid. Why? Because of the words that you have heard, which which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me, but then verse seven, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Wait a minute. Not only is he powerful, his powerful works alongside his sovereignty. He's in control. Hey, this is remarkable. You realize that God here is saying that he has the power to secure outcomes? No one shall thwart the will of God? I I tell you, if we understand verse 7 and we believe it, it would make our fear-mongering of the state of the world a thing to be put in perspective. How many of you have you thought, it's all going downhill, it's all crumbling? I've thought these things. I've thought these things. I can get on Twitter and get worked up just like the next person. Somebody riles me up. All of a sudden, politically, I'm, I'm mad, I'm irritated. One of the kids does something and I jump on them. I'm like, hey, what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm snapping at them. Why? Because I'm worked up inside. All of a sudden, they're like, whoa, what happened to you? What happened to me is I got worked up internally. We have to be careful that while being cognizant of what is taking place in the world, we don't lose sight of the God whom we serve. We have to be careful that while watching the details of all the things that we can you know, grab onto, that we can absorb, that we can watch, we have to not forget that God is not mocked. That no one will thwart the purposes and the plans of God. Do we believe that? Because sometimes... I believe we fall into the trap of thinking there's no way things can turn. There's no way things can work out right. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. God raises up world rulers. He puts them down. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. And God had the power to take the kingdom of Assyria and to take their mighty, powerful leader. And God could change the very ways in which he processed things. And God could put a spirit in him so this powerful man, Sennacherib, could hear a false rumor and it changed the very outcome 
according to the plan and the wisdom of God? Do we believe that God exercises the same sovereignty in the world in which we live today? I encourage you to, with those words because not only can we learn from the reliance of Hezekiah upon the Lord, we can take great comfort that our text seeks to display that God is worthy to be relied on. He's worthy to be relied on. We were going to keep going for a long time. <laughs> I'm landing right here. I, I, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions that I'm going to come back to next week, okay? And they're questions that are going to build. So you, you may hear some of these questions and think, that doesn't relate to today, but I want to get it at least in your mind. Uh, some questions that I want us to really consider over the next two weeks and on, ongoing. The first one, are you disillusioned? The culture's evil. The culture's winning. We are doomed. Wickedness is running rampant. There's no punishment. Sin is not judged. There's no consequence. We can begin to see right here, we need not be disillusioned. God is on his throne. God is sovereign over the world. We can take a big exhale. God is worthy of our trust because he's capable of holding it. The second question, are you fearful? And one thing we're going to learn as we go through this, and again, I'm going to be preaching in my own heart. But one thing we can learn, when low, scary points come, we need to be very observant of where our hearts turn. Do we turn to earthly, man-made saviors? Or do we turn to God? And we need to remember something. When fear overcomes us, our greatest need is actually a greater fear. We need to be consumed with the fear of God that will trump over the fear that we're experiencing. We need to get our eyes off of fear and onto the character of God Almighty. The next question, similar, are you anxious? What are you anxious about today? Did you stay up late last night? Not, not able to sleep wondering about things? The word of God is very practical, isn't it? And God wants us to understand these things that are written for our instruction. We can learn from the godliness of Hezekiah by the grace of God, but we can learn from the character of God. Because as we look to the word of God, we understand the knowledge of God. We understand who God is. Apart from that knowledge and apart from that revelation, all we talk about God is fairy tales. What God has revealed in his word is concrete. We need to understand who he is, his nature, his character. It will grow and build our trust. The fourth question, are you trusting? Are you trusting? Are you taking safety and security and the hope in God? Where are you struggling? Are you struggling? What does your career going to look like? Are you struggling about your future? Are you struggling about are you going to be single or married? Are you struggling about what am I going to do when I get to a college campus? Are you struggling about 
What about my finances? Are you struggling about your health? Are you struggling? On, uh, you, I tell you, if, if, we, if we had full transparency in this room, all of us could add to that list in a great way, couldn't we? But this morning, God desires that we understand that he is worthy of our trust. He's capable of holding it. He's capable of keeping it secure. And finally this morning, the question I want to ask you is, are you praying? Are you praying? Are you praying? I said finally, one more, one more. Are you seeking God in his word? Are you seeking God in his word? I want to read you a passage and we're going to, we're going to land here. Psalm 910. What is the secret for trust? How can we grow in trust? Think about it. We're all getting ready to leave. And somebody may be like, hey, what, what, what do you need? What did you learn today? We're supposed to trust God. How are we going to grow in trust? Psalm 910. And those who know your name put their trust in you. You know how we're going to grow in trust? By growing in fellowship with Christ. And as we grow and know him more, not just in knowledge of information, but knowledge of participation by walking with God, what happens is we begin to discover firsthand he is faithful, he's trustworthy, and we can trust. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the lessons we begin to learn from the life of Hezekiah. And I thank you, Lord, that your grace worked in his life. Oh, God, I pray we would grow, we would learn. Lord, I pray this morning you'd lead us into where we need to confess, where we need to repent. I pray you'd expose our heart. I pray you'd expose our our safety nets. Lord, I pray that our hearts would embrace the reality of your character. And God, I thank you that you are the sovereign God who's laid out our life and you're working according to the decree of your will. According to the counsel of your will, you're working out things that we can't even fathom and you're sustaining our very life just in the ability to be here and to breathe. I pray we would rest in your gracious, sovereign hand. And I pray it would reflect in our lives in the way that we practically walk in our day to day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life that we might live, who shed his blood that we might be forgiven. I pray that each person here today by grace through faith would depend on his sacrifice alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We stand.